Good morning to you. Years ago, a minister put this sign outside of his church. This church will have either a revival or a funeral. And this is, this is the way I feel. Um, it's a great crystallization of, I think, every pastor's heart that burns for God. That we, what we want more than anything is not just to continue to go through, I don't think we're going through the motions. I don't, I don't think anyone here is, but we are prone to do that as believers. Um, or if you've walked in and you don't know the Lord at all, we desire for you to have revival in your hearts. But we want what we want is not the same old thing. What we want is for God to open the windows of heaven, come down, and inflame our hearts with a passion for Jesus Christ, to line, for our lives to line up with what Jesus has done, with who he says he is, and with his call in our lives. So this church will have either a revival or a funeral, to have that sort of desperation that we pray, Lord. If you do not revive our hearts and our church in this area you've planted us in, if you don't soak us and burn us up in your Holy Spirit fire, Lord, then just close the doors right now. Lord, just please come with everything we are in us. So for five weeks, like Nathaniel said, we're going to do a theme series on revival. And this is week one. Kind of had a soft launch of that series, sort of put our toe in the water in Isaiah 6 last week, which was, I really enjoyed. But I'm so excited to see, just to beg God together. Only God can bring revival. We can ask for it. We can hit our knees. We can beg. But only God can do it because revival is God coming to us in our midst in a new and powerful way. Um, and so it's, this is during the season of you know, post-Easter. It's called Easter Tide. All the way up until 50 days after Easter is Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts 2. Peter preached this amazing sermon, and 3,000 people came to Christ in one day. And so this will finish, will culminate, week five will culminate, and we'll finish the series on Pentecost Sunday, so May 7th through June 4th. Um, revival, as I've sort of already said, should be the constant desire of every Christian. Our constant prayer, day in and day out, Lord, revive my heart, revive us as a people, um, both for him or her, herself and for the body at large. To be clear, revival is something, like I said, that only God can bring. Yet there seems to be means, and we'll talk about those means, by which the church can make herself ready for revival and beg God for it. So approaching this, this topic humbly in this season seems altogether appropriate. Um, this morning, three points. No surprise there. I usually have three points. Um, if you want them, what it is, revival, what it is, why we need it, and how to get it. So revival. First, what it is. Secondly, why we need it. And thirdly, how to get it. And don't get nervous. I do preach from the scriptures. That's all I have to preach, to unfold the word of God. My words, may they fall to the floor. But the first two are kind of a setup. The third point, we're going to really get into the text, okay? So what it is, first of all, what is revival, or what, it, what does it look like? One author says this, revival is the Christian life. It's the Christian life, but in greater abundance. The ordinary work of the Spirit experienced in extraordinary measure. Tim Keller, of course I'm going to mention him. Hardly a sermon goes by when I don't. He says the same thing a little more simply, concisely. He says it's the intensification of the ordinary operation of the Holy Spirit. So it's what we already know, but it's an extreme season 
And again, we ought to be begging God for this on a regular basis in our lives. We'll revive our hearts again. Um, so the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit contain at least these four things. They are the conviction of sin, firstly. And that isn't something that should just happen once when we come to Christ, but should happen over and over, a normal part of the Christian life. I think the scripture this morning was read by Luke from 1 John. If we say we have no sin, this is written to the church by John the Apostle. If we say we have no sin, we're liars. It's, that's a, the mark of an immature believer is to say, I think I'm good. Like, I have some little bitties, but pretty much okay. The, the mark of a, of a deep disciple who's walked with Christ for years and years and years is I am, you hear the Puritans say this a lot, I'm a wretch. I'm a, I'm a wretch, you know, I'm a wretched sinner. If you see your sin more and more, the more deeply Christ weds himself to your soul, the more you receive who he is and what he has for you, the more you see. So conviction of sin is what the Holy Spirit brings and what revival brings. Secondly, conversion. Okay, so that always precedes conversion. You can't be converted until you see Jesus Christ got what I deserve. He got the punishment of a sinner. That's me. And he took it in my place because he loves me. Um, so conviction of sin, revival brings conversion. And then it brings, a, it brings an assurance of salvation. We don't, as Christians, not, not every Christian has this. If you don't have it, it doesn't mean you're not saved. But it is the gift of God for every believer to be not assured of feeling a certain way, but despite our feelings, despite the ebb and flow of our lives, to go to the word of God, to know what God has done for us and what his promises in Christ are, yes and amen in Christ, and to say, I know that I am his. I can never, ever lose that. I will never be unsunned or undaughtered because God would have to deny his own son and he'll never do that. So assurance of salvation, and then fourthly, sanctification, which is a fancy word for being made more and more like the Jesus who has fully given himself to us, being made holy, being made like him. So those are the ordinary operations, and they're intensified in revival. So my experience in India, just briefly, I had a personal revival there, and we had a corporate revival. I was in India in 2007 for 10 days, and we were at a pastor's conference, blessed to be teaching these I don't know how we got to do this, but blessed to be teaching these pastors. And they were most of them from the country, and they came from all over India. And a lot of them had literally been stoned, not like stoned, but like stoned, like, like Stephen or Paul, uh, for their faith, run out of towns, really um, in need of encouragement. So we were able to encourage them, hopefully some, and love on them and preach God's, teach, teach God's word to them. And there was just a desperation. There was a over the course of the four or five day conference, there was music playing constantly in the outdoor auditoriums, like a basketball sort of, kind of like that, that covered pavilion area. And there was music playing, there was worship morning and night, and then teaching throughout the day and fellowship. And we were just crying out for the living God and really begging for revival, for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us and renew us. And so at the end of the conference on Friday night, a girl walks up. And again, revival is something you should beg for, but you can never manufacture. I mean, it's something God does. And it's never, it's like a snowflake. It doesn't happen the same way twice, you know. It's like somebody said, it's like going into Narnia. If you've read the Narnia Chronicles, you know, you can never go in the same way twice. Um, but this girl walks up to give her testimony, and literally, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm sitting like here looking out at everybody because they lined up the Americans. They like, it's so embarrassing, but they want to show you extra honor. And so you're all, you've got like little crowns on your head or something ridiculous. And you're sitting there, and you're in a place of honor. And I was, we were looking out, and she was walking up. And she went to grab the mic, and she just went totally limp. Just boom. 
Holy Spirit hit her, and she just went down. And the guy went, whoa, the guy had the mic, and he grabbed her, and he laid her down on the ground. And then the, literally, that was the, it was like a domino effect. She fell, and then people just started falling. And the holy, people started crying out. Demons were manifesting, because when the Lord comes in power, a lot of times that happens. When Jesus comes and on the scene and starts ministering in Galilee and elsewhere, you'll see that in the Gospels. Um, and people were just getting slain in the Spirit and, and, and giving their lives to Christ. And, chain, and so I was like, we were all, you know, a bunch of Western, we were, whoa, what's going on? Some of us got in the game. Some of us stayed on our faces, white as sheets, you know. Um, but I remember saying, like, I'm not going down. No, no way. And then my friend came and prayed for me. And, and without even getting his hand on my chest, I was before I knew it, I was, I was on the ground. He was just, I was weeping. He was weeping. And I got to pray for him, same thing. And so the Holy Spirit was there in power. And the thing is, I don't make much of that experience so, so much as returning from India. Here are some of the evidences of revival. Okay, we all started reading literature, reading the scriptures, trying to find out what had happened to us. I was hungrier for the word than ever. I was hungrier for time alone in prayer. I was kinder to my wife. She noticed a huge difference. We had only been married six months at that point. I was, I was burdened more than ever for the lost. And I was more than ever just in love with Jesus and wanting more and more and more of him. And those are signs of the work of the living God. And that's not, some, that's not the work of Satan. Because we were asking that question, is this the work where you're seeing demons manifest? And No, that's not, Satan doesn't do that stuff. It's a mark of the work of the Holy Spirit, of revival. But don't just take my word for it, take God's word for it. If you look at the disciples in Acts 1, you know, the first part of the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven, and he says, go and wait for me in Jerusalem. So they just spend weeks and weeks just praying. And at that point, they were not unsaved. Jesus had died for them. They had believed on him. They had scattered. But he said, you are my brothers and sisters. We have one father now, now that I've been resurrected from the grave. And we are all one family. He had breathed on them in John 20, given them his, his spirit. But they were still afraid. They weren't preaching anything. They were afraid of the Jews. They didn't know exactly what to do. They, they thought Jesus was going to crush the Romans still. Then you go to Acts 2, flip the page. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes down, not to save, if you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit of the living God. That can never change. He seals you and delivers you to the Father. That's, that's your assurance of salvation. But the life of God is to be continually renewed with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit falls on them as of tongues of fire in Acts 2, and nothing is ever the same after that. And if you'll notice, it's not just that one time. And it's not salvific, and it's not that one time. It's for this normal life of Christ in them. And there are multiple times throughout the book of Acts where they will pray and rejoice for what God is doing, and then it will say the Spirit will fall on them, and the place will shake, and they will go out, and they will preach that gospel fearlessly, testify to the kingship of Jesus Christ and to the gospel and the fact that he died for us and rose for us, and they will suffer for his name with joy. So you see the difference there. You see revival in God's word, not just in my experience in India, and it's all over. So that's what it is. Um, why we need it and what it brings or its effects or fruit. I've talked about some of them, but we need it primarily because we tend, and I'm talking about Christians here. I'm talking about people that are born again, that are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and secured in him by his Holy Spirit. We tend toward declension. We tend toward declining just sort of as a rule um, in our spiritual life. We tend toward cooling. If you look at the, the setting of Samuel in this prayer of Hannah, 
it's the, the setting is it's a it's a period of national declension, spiritual declension, spiritual, moral, political, physical decline. And when spiritual decline sets in, it's only a matter of time before the rest follows. Um, and so it's a time of in the it's the time of the judges, kind of toward the end of that time when everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. And it's this time of decline where this small woman who's really kind of just a nobody in that society, in this low place in Israel's history, cries out this desperate prayer to God, and we see the beginnings of this revival, which, I, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so personal declension, that hymn, I quote the hymn line a lot, it hits me right here, but it's prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's just our natural spiritual state is God saves us, draws us to himself, but I feel like every morning I wake up like one step toward atheism, you know what I mean? To kind of overstate the case, but it's like I, ha- I spend time with the Lord just to get drawn back into him. I just tend toward, I tend to sort of just drift. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. I mention this all the time, but the first of Martin Luther's, we're coming up on the 500th in October, the 500th anniversary of the official start of the Reformation. It had been percolating for really centuries, but 1517, in the fall, I believe, Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg, Germany. And the first of the 95 Theses is that the Christian life ought to be one of continual repentance. And you know, a lot of us, we think of repentance as just the first that we do that to get in the door, and now we're the Lord's. Okay, now what do you want me to do? But actually, it's a gift to know that you're secured in Christ and to be able to continually, hour by hour, day by day, just be repenting of, of false works, of, of things that we do that are sinful, of offenses to God, knowing that we have an advocate before the Father. So he says it's the, that's the normal Christian life, is one of continual repentance. Um, we have this one and done sort of mentality. No, that leads to declension. That kind of mentality leads to spiritual declension. It's the idea that the Christian life to be one of continual repentance will help lead us into a spirit of revival and invite God to revive our hearts. Um, the Puritan Thomas Watson, one of my favorites to read, he's so colorful with his imagery, in his doc- the Doctrine of Repentance, in sentence one of the book, sentence one to the reader, he says, Christian reader, so a Christian, he's talking to the church, okay? The two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. It's a grace to the Christian. He goes on to say, repentance is purgative, it purges the stuff in our lives that's not of Christ. Fear not the working of this pill, says he. See that illustration? I love it. He's so illustrative. Fear not the working of this pill, the repentance pill. Smite your soul, said Chrysostom. Smite it. In other words, blow it. Give it a blow. It will escape death by that stroke. Okay? Another reason that we're, we tend toward declension, hot things tend to cool just naturally in the physical realm. When God saves us. What does David pray? Next week we're in Psalm 51. He says, he says, restore unto me, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Lord, I just tend, I need continual restoration. I had it once when I came to you and I've cooled since then. I've cooled. Lord, restore me to that hotness, to that furious zeal that I ought to have for the fact that you, God, laid your life down on a cross for me and endured the hell that I deserve. Why am I not a flame? I tend to cool. Revive me, God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then finally, under personal declension, Paul's command throughout his letters, 
to the churches. Again, so his letters are to the saints, to the churches that have, people that, have, that are alive in Christ Jesus. He says, it's a command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that verb tense in the Greek, it's a continual, it's, a, it's an ongoing command. So be filled continually, to put that word in there, is the command. He's telling Christians, be filled continually. He's not saying for salvation. He's saying you have the Spirit, and the normal Christian life is to be filled continually with the Spirit. Because what? We are leaky. We're leaky vessels. We are leaky vessels, and we need the fullness of God for all of us, for all of life, on a continual basis. Okay? So praying for that personal revival in light of personal declension. We also need it, uh, we, we tend toward corporate declension, too. So the church, um, Kenneth LaTourette was a Yale scholar, sort of mid-century, who was a church historian, a great one. He wrote lots of great big books on church history. He writes this tiny book that was actually a series of lectures at Harvard that he gave, published in 1945, the, the final year of the Second World War. It was called The Unquenchable Light. And his thesis in the book is that the history of the church is not one of steady growth, but rather of waves, of waves. So what does a wave do? It comes up to the shore, and then what? It pulls back. It recedes. And then it comes up again a little higher, up, up, all the way up to high tide, right? And then it recedes, but not quite as much. And then it comes up a little higher, and then it recedes, but not quite as much. And that's what he says when you look at the history of the church for the 2,000 years, past 2,000 years, it's a history of waves, of revivals and declension. He says, like the tide, the church has moved forward in waves, in his intro. Um, and he gave this series of lectures at Harvard. It's called the William Belden Noble Lectures. I think they're still going on. They started in 1906, and this is the prefatory statement that has to be, by the lecture standard, has to be included in every published series of lectures of the Nobel Lectures, uh, the Nobel Lectures. It says this, the object of the founder of the lectures is to continue the mission of her husband, whose supreme desire was to extend the influence of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The founder has in view the inspiration to Christian missions for the conversion of the world and the hope of arousing in young men and primarily in students of Harvard University the joy of service for Christ and humanity, especially in the ministry of the Christian church. That sounds pretty much like Harvard today, doesn't it? Can you believe that? I only read that to say, look how far our educational institutions have fallen. Look how far they've receded. These institutions, all, I think seven of the eight Ivy Leagues were started in this way as training grounds for young men for the ministry of Jesus Christ, for the conversion of the heathens, for the conversion of the nations. And even a century ago, here's where it was. But before that, there had been declension, but there was revival. So you can see even just in looking at that statement that corporately the church, the nation, as well as personally, we tend toward declension. We need revival. There was a very recent survey done by Ligonier, uh, just came out, um, called The State of Theology. Um, I'll read just three of their findings. This is done by polling people, okay? Number one, this is two evangelical, self-professed evangelical, not just people say, I'm a Christian, evangelical Christians. They say, I'm essentially Bible-believing, spirit-filled. I believe Jesus is the only way. Supposedly, but listen to this. Number one, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 46% of self-identified evangelicals check yes to that. Number two, an individual must, must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. In 2014, three years ago, that was 40% of people. In two years, 
2016, last year, 50% of evangelicals self-professed said, yeah, you have to contribute something. Number three, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 61% strongly disagree. Y'all, the average American evangelical is not only theologically ignorant, but worse, and I don't use that as a slur. I use it literally ignorant of the scriptures, but unbelieving of what the scriptures clearly teach. We are, there are signs of revival, but at the same time, we are very much nationally in a spirit, in a time of declension. We need revival. Um, And like I've said, the history of of the church in America is no different. If you study it, it's a history of revivals. Think about the second, first and second, what? Great awakening. The history of the church in America is a history not of steady increase, but of awakenings from sleep, from slumber, sometimes almost from apparent death. But Christ is the head of his church, and his church will prevail because he is victorious. So when revival happens, a few markers, um, like nationally what we've seen, and, and really globally, is that hospitals, certainly certainly globally, and I'm talking mainly about even the revival in Britain that happened uh, after the Reformation through the Puritans, which is about a, a century-long sort of um, time where they preached and, and planted churches, and the culture over about a century was changed. Hospitals are established and invariably. Education flourishes. Schools are started. Women and the rights of, of those that typically don't, don't have as many rights, uh, the lowest in society, their women are elevated, the lowest in society are, are bolstered and lifted and cared for, orphans, widows, low-wage workers. In Britain, the Royalist Society, which is an extremely, uh, Isaac Newton was one of the first members, 1670 or so, um, it's extremely prestigious, the most, I think, prestigious scientific um, community. In, in Britain, only a very small percentage of scientists and mathematicians are allowed in. It, was, it, w- it basically emerged out of the 100 years of Puritan preaching and, and culture change and really long, slow revival that came through that. Um, constitutional liberties, the law being uh, the king and not the king being the king, constitutional liberties emerged in, in, in the American colonies, actually came out of that time. So um, in sum, the history of the church is a history of revivals. And so it is with most Christians in our walk with God. Our walk with God is a history of, Lord, wake us up as a church. Wake us up. Wake me up as a person. Wake us up to the verities that are presented to us in Christ. What happens practically when revival comes? Again, Keller, he gives us these three things. One, sleepy Christians wake up. So you're a believer. You're regenerate. But you've kind of, again, tending toward declension. You, you're sort of sleepwalking at least halfway through life. Um, not really living in light of, of the gospel. Like, you, your life doesn't totally line up with the book of Acts. Does mine? Am I in some sense asleep? Absolutely. Sleepy Christians wake up. Um, Ed, Jonathan Edwards experienced revival in his own time and, and contributed to it and opened the door for it in some ways. And he, his comment is that what would normally take, the Spirit just, again, is doing in abundance uh, sort of fast-forwarding what he normally does at, at normal speed, in abundance what he normally does uh, not, not that, in not that great measure. But Edward says that what would normally take a year in the church and with people in general that are saved will take like a week. Things just speed up. And there's this fire burning. So sleepy Christians wake up. Nominal, secondly, nominal Christians get converted. So what does that mean? That basically means that there are those of you in here, no doubt, even in a group this size, but there are people in every church in America that are lost as geese, that are far from God, that are headed to hell, 
that are dead in their sins and trespasses who think that they are not, who think that they're Christians, who think that they know God. And going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Okay, Believing on Christ and receiving his Holy Spirit, uh, believing that he shed his blood for you through no good of your own and receiving that by faith and having the Spirit come in you and make you alive, take you from death to life. That's what a Christian is. He's a new creature in Christ. He's a qualitatively new person. But So the nominal that think they're believers that are in church actually get saved in, in revivals. And then thirdly, the lost, the hard to reach especially, says Keller. The really hard to reach get saved. So look at the Syrian church right now. You look at all the persecution going on. Some of us have read Tom Doyle's books, Standing in the Fire, Killing Christians. And you see like Muslims, hard Muslims and, and others from other religions, um, the Druze or, yeah, just people that there's never been a single record of any of them coming to Christ ever. And if they find out that someone does, they'll just burn your house down and put you on a stick, that kind of stuff. And people are just coming to Christ. People are being saved in droves through this fire time. And often when the fire of the Holy Spirit comes, he brings us to our knees first. And that's what's happening in the Syrian church. And that's really, we're hitting our knees together, praying, Lord, do whatever it takes. And that's what we see in the prayer of Hannah, is that she's desperate. And that's what we want to be. We want more of God. We're begging for revival. Um, the situation in Houston, guys, where we are, um, we are not reaching the lost. We are not. I mean, there are, there are so many lost in the city as it is. There's so much darkness. And um, there are, at one time, a year and a half ago, I don't know exactly what the number is, but there were um, 2,500 people a week coming to the city of Houston. And then we had that dip in the oil, but now we're kind of back, stabilized some, I think. But there are tons thousands moving to the city weekly. And even if that, you know, so even if we were already good and there were and there were light there was light in every part of the city and people were coming to Christ in droves, which they're not right now. Um, and there's so much darkness and sin and evil out there. And even in this in this area, right? Um, on both sides of Westheimer, there are people that are lost that are coming in droves to the city every single week. A mega church a week essentially. Um, so so we are not reaching the lost. But we need revival. Even the church itself is sort of asleep in a lot of ways. So we need, in every part, in every way, we need revival. We need to be awakened. So, so finally, um, I want to talk about, thirdly, how to get it, how to get it, and to dive into our text this morning. Briefly, just to touch on a few things, okay? So number one, I feel like the overarching esprit of, of Hannah and her prayer is she's desperate. You can tell by her language. She is, she's mistaken for drunk. She's crying. She's, when, I mean, I would highly recommend if you have a problem praying, which if there might be one of you in here that really doesn't, in all honesty. I think most of us do. I think men especially for some reason. I don't know if it's, we're extra hard-headed or what. I think we think we can do things on our own. And I can find it. It's fine. I can, if it's in the fridge, I got it. No, you can't. Just move out of the way. I'm not asking for directions. Just please, stop. So we... Uh, but she, she is desperate. She has nothing, and um, this is where we want to be um, when we pray. Oh, what I was saying, she, she's praying out loud, and she is mistaken for drunk by the priest. I mean, man, when was the last time? First of all, I'd highly recommend, if you have a problem praying, pray out loud. Great. Or pray walking or pacing. I think my brother, at some point in his spiritual journey, I don't know if you still do this, but he, had, uh, he found that pacing was one of his favorite ways. So you're seeing him pacing somewhere and talking to himself. He's talking to God. Don't worry. Go join him. But 
find a way that it works, but she's crying out loud to God, and, she, and she's so just disheveled and, and beside herself and desperate that Eli thinks she's drunk. When was the last time you prayed in such a way that someone could have mistaken you for drunk, just dead drunk? Lord, would you do that in our day? Would you do that now? Would you do that today? Would you do that in our lives that we could pray like that, that we could be that kind of people? Um, again, like I said, this is a time when we, when we step into Hannah's position. We step into where she was and how she was coming to God of huge darkness. The light, what was to be the people of God, the light of the world, had forgotten God, and everybody was doing what was right in his or her own eyes. They had no king, and they were each basically a king unto themselves. And they had forgotten God. And so it was a huge time of moral, spiritual, and national declension. Her family, Elkanah, her husband, is, he's probably from the priestly line, from what we can tell, but he was really a nobody in this sort of time of darkness, and she was even more so because, again, she, Elkanah had two wives, and he probably married Hannah first, and then she didn't produce any children, so he probably married the second woman. He still loved Hannah, but he married a second woman to, to get some children, and, she, and this second woman, Peninnah, had a ton of children, so she would just constantly rib. Can you imagine in the same house? She would just constantly rib Hannah and be like, I got tons of children, look at me. And they would go and they would, I mean, so Hannah was just miserable. She was loved by Elkanah, but she was miserable. She was being made fun of by Peninnah, and she didn't have any children, and it broke her heart. And in that, in that context, having, she was no less worthwhile in her husband's eyes or in God's eyes, but she, the culture said, you're, you're nothing if you don't have kids. Um, and so she was desperate. Um, and God loves God, get this, guys. God loves it when we're desperate. He loves when we are in a place where we could be mistaken for drunk people because we're crying our guts out to him in prayer. He loves that. Lord, would you get us to that place? Leonard Ravenhill, a, a revivalist preacher, mid-century British, he came and lived in the States. He says, a broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. That's from Psalm 51 next week. In fact, God only uses broken things, he says. For example, Jesus took the boy's bread and broke it. It then and only then could it feed the crowd. The alabaster box was broken. Only then could, it fragrance, could its fragrance escape and fill the house and the world. Jesus said, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you. God only uses broken things. And yet in our lives, we so, we so are conditioned by our society and by our flesh to appear strong and to appear like we have our things together. I was at a party yesterday, and it was, I mean, I don't, you know, it was good. People there are really a pleasure to be around, but there's always some of that sort of, hey, 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 how you doing, great? You know, you know, and it's just like, man, we just all want to come across as having it together, and God loves brokenness, and he only uses someone that's just been broken open, because then he, he can do something with that, because that's where we have to come to him. He doesn't need our strength. It's actually a weakness with God. Ravenhill, again, he says, when a couple of struggling Salvation Army officers wrote to William Booth telling him they tried every way to get a move and failed, and he sent his terse reply, two words, try tears. They did, and they had revival, says Ravenhill. Hannah is an example to us of that. Look at her prayer briefly as we, as we jump into it for a few seconds. Look at her prayer, how it moves her from, she, there's this movement in Hannah's prayer, in, in her um, in, in what the narrator says about where she is in chapter 1, which we didn't read, 
And then in chapter 2, in her actual prayer to God, there's a movement from bitter to stubbornly unyielding to peace and then to gladness and joy. So bitter and discontented, if you look at chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, if you have a Bible or later, um, she's bitter and discontented. Look at those words are used. She's just bitter. She's angry. She's all just, oh, bitter, eating up inside. Verse 10 and 11, she's getting ribbed on by Penina, man. Smack that woman. No, she goes to God with it. She goes to God honestly in her prayers. She knows he can take it, and he does. And then there's a little bit of a movement from 1, verses 10 and 11, to verse 15, a few verses later. There's this ambiguous word that's used to describe Hannah. Five verses back, we just saw she's bitter. And then in three verses, in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, we find that she's actually described as content. And she's found peace, and her face is no longer sad, and she eats, and she leaves contented. But right here in verse 15, she's in the middle. And there's this ambiguous Hebrew word that's used, kase, and it means hard, stubborn, severe, fierce, or strong. This could be, it could go both ways, and it's actually used both ways in the scriptures. It's used 36 times in the Old Testament. It's used of Israel's hard labor in Egypt, same word, the hard labor as slaves. And then it's, secondly, it's used of, their, of Israel being a, a hard or a stiff-necked is the phrase we, we know, a, a kase, a stiff-necked people. Those are negatives. And actually, almost every instance is negative. But there's one positive, at least, usage in Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, toward the end of the song. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy, here's the word, as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. I think that the author uses this ambiguous word purposefully to show that prayer, desperate prayer, being in a desperate place before God and pouring your soul out to him, not as you think he wants to hear it, but as you actually are, individually, corporately, as a people, right, moves Hannah. It serves as a bridge for Hannah to move her from bitter to severe, raw, persistent, finally to contentment and then to joy. She experiences personal revival. We see this movement in these two chapters with Hannah. How does she do it? She does it by hitting her knees and by prayer and by being honest with God, by being mistaken for drunk. She's going to nuts. In pouring herself out to God in this desperate place, friend, again, have you ever, here's the line that I said earlier, have you ever, it's worth repeating, prayed so hard that you wept? Okay, I have, I have, and I want more of it, not as much as I need. Have you ever prayed so hard that people looked at you and said, homie is drunk, dead drunk. I haven't. I would like that. I would like for some of you to think that I'm drunk because I'm praying so desperately to God. I would like for some of our prayer meetings, maybe it's not even on a Wednesday night. <gasps> oh, maybe, we just, maybe we just get together because we're so desperate for God to come down and to change our hearts and to line us up more with what he says he has actually done for us and who we are and our brokenness for the lost and to see him move in power in our lives and in this area and to change this area and this city that we would meet in someone's house, whether it's on a Wednesday night or other time, and pray in such a way that a neighbor comes in, they're like, they think it's a party or whatever, and they walk in and they're like, whoa, what are you guys drinking? I would love for that to happen. May it be, Lord. May it be. The theme of Hannah's prayer, the theme of Hannah's prayer, just looking a little bit more at her prayer and then closing up with a few quotes from Bill Hull. 
The theme of Hannah's prayer is this. If I could say it in brief. God brings the high low, and he brings the low high. It's a a theme all shot throughout chapter 2 in her prayer of reversals. Uh, In verse 1, line 2, my horn or my strength, horn in the Old Testament means strength. The horn on a rhinoceros is the thing that's going to get you. It's, It's strength. My horn is exalted in the Lord. This weak woman, this nobody is saying, my horn has been exalted. My strength, God has taken my strength and he's lifted it up. What does this mean? It's a motif strewn throughout the scriptures, the Psalms, Isaiah. It's in Mary's prayer, the mother of Jesus, the Magnificat. Uh, Zachariah's prayer, the husband of Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist. I've never really understood this motif, the reversals thing. It's parts of it, but it always befuddled me, and I feel like I got a little bit more of it this week as I meditated on it. I don't think it means that God's going to make all the poor rich and all the rich poor, um, or that he favors the poor over the rich, even. We know that's not true. But before I let us completely off the hook and go to what I want to say, let me share briefly Jerem Barr's comments on Hannah's prayer here. Jerem Barr, professor up at Covenant, he says, what are the themes of Hannah's song? The world is full of powerful, arrogant, wealthy people who ignore God and trust, here's the key word, trust in their riches. Riches are not bad, but we are prone to trust in them when we have them. And in their strength and power, they trust in their riches and strength and power. But God will cast them down and instead will raise up the poor and humble who put their trust in him. And then he continues. He says, these are very challenging words for those of us who live in an affluent society. I have to ask myself the urgent question. If I am one who does have wealth, plenty of food and happiness now, here's the question. Where is my trust? Only you can honestly answer that. Only you. And if you don't, if you're not honest with yourself here, then nobody can help you. I mean, the Lord can get you there, but this is a time for us to ask, where do I, where do I really? We can all, we can all put up a nice show. Where do I really put my trust? I'm convicted big time that I trust in a lot of things other than the Lord because I have a lot. Do I put my trust in these good gifts of God or in the Lord himself? Do I regard the good things I enjoy as his gifts that I do not merit? Or do I regard them as simply my right because of my talents, my hard work, my faith, and my righteousness? Okay, so that said, the words from Jerem Bars, I do feel on a more profound level that this prayer and others like it throughout Scripture speaks to the way that God saves. Rich or poor, only, here's the thing, rich or poor, only the low can come to God. It's the only way that God receives us. Bono, U2 singer, I've said this line before. He says, you ask me to enter in one of his songs, and then you make me crawl. The only way to, to, to enter into God's presence through no good of our own is to enter with nothing in our hands, bringing, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. I can't bring anything in my favor to God. All I can say is I'm a sinner. I have nothing. You did it all for me through no good of my own, but because you're good. So we all have to get to that. That's the first step, getting to the place of repenting of our, not only our bad works, but of our good works. Anything that we've tried to do to polish ourselves up to get to God, the gospel says, no, not a chance. Jesus would not have come and endured the wrath of God and hell itself for us if there were another way to get to him. He wouldn't have done it. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We have to repent of trying to bring anything to God and trying to live 
as Christians with anything else that would recommend us to God other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. This bringing the high low and the low high, it's the very way that God chose to save. He came from the highest place, from the councils of the Trinity, with everything at his disposal. Perfect happiness, satisfaction, all wealth. God. And he became a lowly carpenter's son, rejected by his own creation, hung on a Roman cross, crucified, poured out the wrath of the Father on him. He became sin for us and endured hell. The highest place, he came to the lowest place to lift up wretched sinners who look to him and say, you took what I deserve, I believe, to the highest place to be seated with him in heaven. It's, it's the way that he saves. This, this, this theme that's the warp and woof of Hannah's prayer is how God works. We see that in the person of Jesus Christ. So we see this even before Hannah gets what she's asking for, before she, her request is granted and she bears a son whose name ends up being Samuel. She leaves, I think it's verse 18 of chapter 1, before she gets any answer from God, she cries her eyes out, is mistaken for drunk, and she leaves with peace and contentment. Why? Because she's found that God is what she's been seeking. She's found her heart's desire. Not Samuel, not a, not a child. And in finding God, she's found all. We see it in her prayer, too, in chapter 2. God, in her prayer, there's no mention of Samuel. Samuel is my strength. Samuel is my rock. No, it's God is my strength and my salvation, my rock. There's no one else like him. It's just this prayer of praise to the living God. She has found what she's looking for, and her heart exults in the Lord. It's the first line in the prayer. My heart is thrilled, not in Samuel, in the Lord. In verse 2, there's no one but God. Wait, what about Samuel? No, she doesn't mention Samuel. Um, No one compares to God. He's both unique, nothing else lines up next to him, and he's a rock. He alone is what I rely on, what I cling to when the currents are rushing past me. He's my only rock. And her personal revival, and here's the thing, her personal revival, this little woman in this dark place in Israel's history with no rights and not looked upon as anything, crying out to God in an almost drunken, apparently drunken state. She's not drunken. She's drunken with desperation. Her personal revival, she's found what she's looking for, and it's God Almighty. God has become her portion. Would that we could say that. Leads to national revival. And no, no, doubt, no doubt it leads to a revival in her home, in her neighborhood, in her little local province, but it leads to national revival because Samuel is that son that she gives back to God. Look at what she does. She doesn't, once God gives her Samuel, she doesn't keep him. She gives him to God, and he spends his entire life in the temple away from her after she breastfeeds him, after the first three years. She takes him to the temple, and every day, every year she goes up to the temple, and she makes him a little robe, a little bigger every year because he's getting bigger and bigger, and she takes it up to the temple, and no doubt she brings some goodies with her, as every mom does, but she's given him to the Lord, and he becomes essentially the last judge, a prophet, priest, and king figure who anoints the first king of Israel, Saul, and then who eventually anoints David, through whom we receive Jesus Christ. Jesus is born as the son of David, and the promise to renew all things, all of creation, and to to heal what's been broken, to mend what's been torn, comes through David, and Samuel's the one who anoints him and paves the way for David. 
So this little tiny, can you start any smaller than Hannah, this tiny woman with no rights that's not looked upon well at all in this dark place in Israel's history, on her knees, crying her guts out to God. Can you start any smaller? Can you get any bigger than where it leads to? Cosmic renewal. Guys, compared to Hannah on her knees, we are a giant force. The 40 of us that are here this morning. God doesn't need us, but he will use us if we please to, if we are pleased to be broken, because he only uses broken things. So we could cry out for this kind of desperation for the living God. Um, so look at all that little Hannah's prayer led to. Her heart changed, God became her all, and then he used this to change the world. Discipleship, and I'm going to close with a few quotes from, from Hull. And then I'll pray us out. Discipleship guru Bill Hull, Bill Hull says that this desperation and finding in our desperation the living God for whom we are made and finding our contentment in him, truly, truly finding that we need nothing else. And then guess what? When we find that, usually he gives us all the rest besides, right? But Lord, revive our hearts in such a way. He says that this is the heart of revival. Not surprisingly, not surprisingly fire from heaven that we could all see and that might burn this building up and that we just run out with, like with our hair on fire just shouting the gospel in the streets, okay? It's probably not going to look like that. It might. It might. Revival never happens the same way twice. But rather a small, quiet, steady people who are devoted to following Jesus Christ, whose hearts are wholly his, made such by the Holy Spirit. Hull says this. He says, another way to put it is the often asked question, how do I get Christ into my office? If you're in the home, your home is your office, your neighborhood, okay? How do I get Christ into the office? The answer, go in and sit down. Okay, let me unpack that. When you as a disciple of Christ arrive at work, this is whole still, the kingdom has arrived because you are there. You might protest, I'm here, but now what do I do? Sit around and look holy? Start a Bible study? Leave a few gospel tracts in the lunchroom? You know you've all had that idea. Maybe some of you have done it. Nothing wrong with that, says Hull. Some direct efforts have their place, but what is really needed is the transformed, fully devoted, desperately seeking God, transformed life of Christ present in that space through you, through you. Commenting on the writing of Dallas Willard, Hull continues, he says, the church thinks of community as internal to the church. Okay, so you come to our parishes, you come on Sunday, that's our community. Dr. Willard espouses transformed disciples to live in community with the people, with the people in real community, largely unsaved. The real communities of living are neighborhoods, recreational associations, schools, businesses, friendships. Living in these communities, here's the thing, as Christ would live, our hearts fully his, because most of the members are not disciples that we'll encounter. That God has placed, these places that God has put us in, our work, our neighborhoods, the shops we go to, our schools. There are no planned meetings or curriculum. There is only the, quote, big curriculum, the living of life. The reason we know it can work is that it has worked before. Tertullian, in his first apology, it's a faith defense, answered the critics who were concerned about Christians and Christians overrunning the world. So they saw in the, you know, second, third centuries, they saw the tide beginning to turn and the Christians were starting to like take these squashed, persecuted, you know, 
adherence to the way and this crucified Messiah named Jesus, this carpenter, they're like starting to take over society in all these different areas. And people are getting, the pagans, the Roman pagans who worship false gods are getting nervous. Tertullian writes to them, he says, men cry out that the state is besieged. The Christians are in the fields, in the ports, in the islands. They didn't just stay in their little holy huddles, did they? They mourn as for a loss that every sex, age, condition, and even rank is going over to this sect, to Christianity. We are but of yesterday, so we're like 150 years old, right? And yet we have filled every place belonging to you. Cities, islands, castles, towns, assemblies, your very camps, your tribes, companies, palace, estates, senate, forum. We leave only your temples. All your ingenious cruelties can accomplish nothing. Our number increases the more you destroy us. And here's the favorite line, the famous line. The blood of the martyrs is their seed. Sociologist Rodney Stark in his groundbreaking work, great book, if you haven't discovered Stark, do. The Rise of Christianity. I think he's still at Baylor. He begins with a question in The Rise of Christianity. How was it done? Simple question. The simple questions are the best, but take them seriously. How was it done? We think we know the answer. How was it done? How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement move from the edge of the Roman Empire to dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? In 100 AD, the church was between seven and 10,000. It might have been a little higher. That's their number. 300 years later, they were 350 million strong. How did this happen? Paul concludes, it wasn't that the church, listen to me, and then we're done. It wasn't that the church took over the Mediterranean world. Christ did. Because he had taken over his church. Their hearts, like Hannah, were wholly his. He is calling us to this. He is calling us to himself. He is calling us to revival. Do whatever it takes, Lord. Make us a people desperate for you and for you alone. And do what you will in this place, in our hearts and in this place, in this time, in such a way that we would not even believe it if we heard it now. Lord, would you transform this area? Would you revive this place? Would you revive our hearts? Would you change this school? Would you change this neighborhood? Would you change this area that you've placed us in? Would you change this city? And through this most international of cities in history, would you change the world? Would you do that, Lord? Because you can. That's our prayer. That's what I'm going to be preaching at Vision Sunday in 10 minutes. Let's pray.